Welcome. You're listening to the Mac Observer's Background Mode. This is your host, John Marcellaro, and this week my guest is productivity coach, Brittany Smith. Brittany, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. For the listeners, Brittany Smith, Smoth, Brittany Smith, has <laughs> studied cognitive neuroscience and provides a variety of consulting services through her business, Devise and Conquer, that includes ADD and ADHD, that's attention deficit hyperactivity disorder coaching, technology coaching, productivity coaching, and more. She is a self-designated well-rounded geek, according to her bio at Truck Favorites. I discovered you on Chuck Joyner's Truck Favorites. We've both been on. I did mm-hmm. The Inner Light on Next Generation, and you did Time Zero on Next Generation. Yep, both And good episodes. Uh, that was a fascinating show. I loved it because it was about data, how he survived playing poker in the 19th century and built equipment out of spare parts and met Samuel Clemens. It was just an amazing show. And time had a time travel, too. So congratulations. That was a really good show. <laughs> Thank you. It was a lot of fun. You were delightful, and I knew right away after watching that, I knew I had to have you on background mode to talk about you and your career and, and your life. So tell me about your early career and your passions and aspirations when you were young. Oh, when I was young. Oh, that's hard. Um, I mean, my first job I wanted was a cashier because when I was four, I loved counting money. I don't think that one counts. Um <laughs> <laughs> through through middle school and high school, uh, I was making movies, so I wanted to work in film. Really? Um, I, I did get a film degree. iMovie? Um, yeah, like making movies. No, with Apple's iMovie? Uh, no, I, I was a Vista convert. I used Windows up until then. Oh, my condolences, especially I Vista. Know. <laughs> I know. Well, that's, what, that's really what did it in. <laughs> The end of the line for a lot of Windows users. <laughs> Definitely for me. Um, yeah, so I, I made them. We had video cameras from the time I was really young because um, my parents were early adopters and would buy a lot of things like that. And so I commandeered them and made movies. What about? Um, I made a lot of music videos. Um, I did a few other things. One of my first ones I like learned to edit on i made a vampire talk show <laughs> of course ask, what else <laughs> of course this and I is, is Brittany here <laughs> <laughs> i learned to edit because i was also the guest i was about 12 so you interviewed yourself in a split screen mm-hmm. as different characters yeah oh that's fascinating <laughs> no wonder you ended up studying cognitive neuroscience with a mind like that I'm not surprised. <laughs> oh. oh, well, yeah, I, I saw on Trek Favorites that your parents were very technical. And that must have had an influence on you, too. Well, my mom was technical. My dad, so my dad wanted to be a scientist, and then he realized he liked helping people better, which is very similar to what I did. Um, not, not that we don't both love science, but that we didn't love academia in the end. Um, and so he became a podiatrist, but he he was preparing to be a, a scientist. My mom was a programmer in the uh, late 70s, early 80s, well, through the 80s. And Can I ask who for and what kind of language she was using? I'm just curious. 
<laughs> um, so when I was growing up, she worked for a very small company called Alpha Healthcare, who made proprietary operating systems. Um, they were playing with more uh, common languages. I want to say it was C. Um, and so we had a, like a little office full of computers in our basement when I was a kid. So this is, you know, 1985. Mm -hmm. And we have multiple computers in our basement because there was this branch of my mom's office that was all working out of our house. Um, so, yeah, lots of computers as around my house. As long as it house. wasn't COBOL. <laughs> I don't think so. I don't think so. <laughs> but we had MS-DOS, like, for our computers, Um the ones I used, like I didn't use computers when I was three, but like the first ones I used were all MS-DOS. Yeah, that's a lot like Kelly's background where she grew up with Apple IIs and stayed after school and got tutoring <laughs> from the teacher and kind of right. like, you know, really leaned into the Apple II in an early age. Yeah. And my impatience was part of it. Like I could wait for my mom to have time to install this game that we'd bought or I could figure it out myself. I could have broken it too, but I didn't. <laughs> So did did your parents being technical like that inoculate you as a woman against negative peer pressure or did you never feel any? I I didn't feel it that way. No. Um and I think so. My mom is not you wouldn't Because hmm. sometimes young women I know my wife is a professor and she reports yeah. that the number of women in her programming classes are dwindling. And she's trying to figure it out. In some cases, it's negative peer pressure. In some cases, it's just job opportunities and the culture. So my dad was not good with computers. Um, <laughs> like, not at all. And so I didn't, I wasn't exposed to that stereotype until I was at least a teenager. Because at my house, my mom was the programmer and my dad could barely turn a computer on. And so it was, yeah, I... It, it was it was sort of a joke when I found out because it was obviously not true. <laughs> so it, so when you when you work with a computer, you have a sense of independence. You have control over the machine. You learn yeah. things. You use things, mm -hmm. and that's sort of a badge of honor. And so when people get on your case about being a geek, it doesn't really bother you because you know what you can do. Is that how you felt? Yeah, and. <sighs> people's opinions that aren't people I care about have never mattered very much to me. So, okay, this is what I like to do. You can go do what you like to do. Yeah. You mentioned uh, a little while ago, 1984, 85 range. That's just about the time Next Generation came on the scene. I remember from Trek mm -hmm. Favorites, you talking about how Star Trek, perhaps it was Next Generation, really had a strong influence on you as well. Yeah, yeah. My siblings were in gymnastics, which meant we had a dinner very late. So we happened to have dinner at seven o'clock because it went next gen went straight to syndication. And so our local channel played it every night at seven. And so every night at seven, we would watch dinner, watch the show while we ate dinner. And so that it was profound. I mean, it's it's shaped my politics as an adult. It's shaped it's shaped um, how I feel about the world. It's been yeah, a very profound influence on me. I noticed on your website you have a, like a Star Wars type logo. Are you are you sensitive to the Star Wars lack of tech? It's more mythic than tech, like Star Trek. How do you yes. feel about that? Um, I, I mean, Episode Four or 
A New Hope or just Star Wars, whichever you like to call the first Star Wars movie, um, like within the first 30 minutes established that their use of technical words was absolute garbage <laughs> because a parsec is the not a run. distance. <laughs> of course. Yeah. <laughs> and so I never take anything they say too seriously. Overthinking science in Star Wars will make you mad. So <laughs> I just true. sort of dismiss it. <laughs> but even star trek i mean one of the hardest things just i don't know emotionally i'm you know i'm getting this master's degree in cognitive neuroscience and i'm watching an episode of next gen and beverly crusher said something that was just patently untrue and it like hit my heart for a second did she stop being your hero or did that just (laughs) inspire you to be better Oh, I think Data was my hero. But <laughs> Me too. Well, actually, Captain Picard. My favorite Starship yeah. captain and my favorite Star Trek character in general is Jean-Luc Picard. Yes, yes. It was just like, okay, this must be what my cousin goes through all the time, who's a rocket scientist. And so I, I sat down and chatted with him one time about like, so I had this one moment. And, and then my science degree made it harder to watch the show I love for a second. Like, is that... I think he's just gotten used to it because you offend rocket scientists all the time with fiction. So, I just had Dr. Susan Schneider on the show. She's a, mm-hmm. a AI specialist at the University of Connecticut, and uh, we talked briefly about consciousness and this whole business of robots achieving consciousness and achieving identity, and then of course rights as sentient beings. Did did data's sense of intelligence and consciousness inspire you into your career and your studies of cognitive neuroscience? I don't know that it came from data, but I do love his character. <laughs> um, I, I liked the idea and um, of him. I, what spurned me to neuroscience was actually quite a bit different than that, and it's probably Disneyland's fault. Oh, I got to hear this story. <laughs> Um, so I, I always loved dressing up. And so I got a job at Disneyland because why not? You get to dress up no matter where you work, you're wearing a costume. Um, and so I started working with kids for the first time and, and I figured out really quickly that adults don't understand kids just because I'm watching their interactions and studying people. And I, you know, I studied film and so I've studied how people work and, how they think about things, you know, as long as I've been studying anything. And so I watched that at Disneyland and um, the places where they were getting what they needed. And then I lived in this tiny town right after that um, for this job where the adolescents have no direction. Their parents don't know how to handle anything. There's nothing to do. And I, I really got this urge to try to help more people see these things that I could see that other people couldn't see. And I thought, well, I need someone who is an expert in kids. And then after a while I realized, why don't I just become an expert in kids? And so then I went to get my bachelor's degrees because my film degree was an associate's. And so I got a bachelor's degree in child development, another one in psychology. And by then I discovered cognitive science and how awesome that is. And so um, I got a position as a master's student at the brain development lab at the University of Oregon. Oh, cool. So normally, that sounds like you were on a very um, serious academic track. So the next step for most people in your situation would have been a PhD and then research in neuroscience. Mm-hmm. 
Right. But that didn't go that way. Tell no, me about that. I, I, I kept realizing how much I loved the application of the science. So um, I participated in uh, an advanced ADHD coaching group uh, because I was diagnosed with ADHD as I was getting my bachelor's degrees. You were? Yes. Yeah. Who knew? <laughs> Apparently some people, but they weren't me. <laughs> <laughs> and so I wanted to learn more about my brain and how it works. And um, so I, I, I participated in this coaching group and, and I sometimes would chirp in, oh, so, you know, in my cognitive neuroscience classes, we did this thing. So this, you know, this other aspect might be helping and, and started reading that research that was related specifically to ADHD or to, well, it was an attention laboratory. So the attention was um, part of what was already being studied there. And um, there's another uh, really great couple of researchers that who've moved on now, but uh, who do working memory and attention. And so taking those things and helping people apply them in the group. And, uh, and at one point, the group leader who was my ADHD coach in grad school I, I was talking to her about how frustrated I was with academia and how boring it is to apply for grants. And and she said, OK, I know you love science, but I do want you to think about maybe being an ADHD coach when you finish your master's degree, because these things that you have come up with and because ex- I experiment on myself, that's what I do. I'm a scientist at heart and I try these things out and I see how they go. And uh, so I would experiment with things and test about anyway so she said i should look into seeing if that was a good fit for me and it was your career is very similar to dr kiki sanford mm-hmm. she studied uh, bird neuroscience and got her phd and then she got into the research area and she didn't care much for the academic life mm-hmm. so she spun out and she started a fabulously successful weekly science show this week in science Oh, cool. Yeah. I should check it out. Yeah, it's very good. I've had her on the show six or seven times. She's amazing. Wow. So, um, anyway, we have to take a short break right now. Um, folks, we'll be back in 60 seconds. I'm chatting with uh, Brittany Smith about her life and times and cognitive neuroscience and all that good stuff. We'll be back in 60 seconds. Stay with us. Hello there, all you fabulous background mode listeners. I'm Kelly Gamont with the Mac Observer, and I just want to say a few words about how you can support all the things we do. If you're thinking about buying something from Apple, Amazon, or Mac Mall, just go to the Mac Observer's homepage where we have a section called Support TMO, or you can just enter macobserver.com forward slash Apple Store, all one word, and that will take you to our special page for Apple and our other affiliates. If you make a purchase from one of our partners this way, the Mac Observer receives a small compensation for sending business their direction. Pretty cool, right? And you don't pay a penny more. This small fee from our affiliates helps us continue to bring you TMO's daily news, reviews, tips, how-tos, and podcasts like this one. So the next time you're thinking about an online purchase, come to TMO's homepage and support the Mac Observer. Thanks. Back to you, John. Thank you. I'm chatting with Brittany Smith, Productivity Coach. So tell me, since you studied and have a master's degree, what is exactly cognitive neuroscience? Can you explain it to us? Like how it differs from neuroscience or? Well, just what it is in general. I mean, if, if, if you were writing a book on cognitive neuroscience for dummies, how, how, what would be the preface? What would you say it's all about? It's, 
It's how we think and how our brain functions. And, and really where one of the interesting things is where the limitations are. Um, you know, studying working memory capacity that, you know, on average, it's three items. I know it's a controversial thing based on which body of research you're looking at. But um, yeah, so what the working memory limits are, uh, what are the individual differences in working memory? Um, what are, which is more on the cognitive science end, but it's just how the brains work and how we use them. And I, obviously I'm really interested in attention and working memory. Attention. Is it in any way related to consciousness, self-recognition? I've never really dived into consciousness because it always felt so nebulous and hard to study. Yeah, it is. <laughs> we don't really understand it from talking to Dr. Schneider last week. We don't really understand it at all. And right. until we do, we're never going to be able to instantiate it in silicon. So we're a yeah. long way away from that. A long way away from Mr. Data, Lieutenant Commander Data. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and even then he had it tested too, um, whether or not we thought he was conscious or real or independent. Yeah, there's some, there's some notions about consciousness. One of them is uh, self-talk. You know, do you have conversations with yourself? And how, mm -hmm. how, do you, how do other people know you're engaged in that? Uh, seeing yourself in a mirror and recognize yourself. When I hope my cat... And my cat is in the mirror in front of me. She doesn't recognize herself. She doesn't know who that is. So there's right. a diminished level of cognitive awareness there. Yeah. Whereas my nephew, even at, you know, three or four months, he could tell it was me on FaceTime. Like, he would smile and recognize a face. Yeah, we have some built-in facial recognition stuff in mm -hmm. our head, don't we? We do. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's pretty cool. And we look at that a lot in infant research, which... Even just as a person who loves problem solving, infant research is so fascinating because you have to be so creative in order to get information. They can't talk to you. They can't tell you what they're thinking. They can't control their limbs yet. <laughs> <laughs> so how do you know what's really going on? And so I like even the methodology. I, I do like methodology in general, but uh, infant research methodology is so cool just because you have to be so creative. What do you study? What does the curriculum look like when you got your master's degree in cognitive neuroscience? Did you take any mathematics or f physics? Statistics. Or statistics. Ah. Lots of statistics because people are messy and you have to be find a way to filter that out or to find what's really going on. Have to separate the signal from the mess. noise. Yeah. Right. Exactly. And brains are even messier. Um, they're they're really noisy. So my research that my lab's research was looking at EEGs and they do what's called event-related potentials uh, because your brain is putting off tons of signals all the time. How do you know what's happening? In order to study something specific like were you listening carefully to your right ear and able to ignore your left ear if there's one story going in each ear? So what they do is put in these audio blips in the middle and you time what the brain is doing to the blip. And so you would, and so we need these hundreds of trials for each participant, and you use statistics to average that out and figure out, okay, only what's happening, only what are we measuring at the blip? At what sites on the scalp are you finding these brain waves? And yeah, you have to be pretty careful with those too and those stats. <laughs> I saw something fascinating on a talk show the other night, and I was thinking about you. 
Mm-hmm. The speaker was asked a question, and, he, and the speaker was trying to remember a name, and, and, and she gave the wrong name. And she just kept on talking, kept on talking, and about 10 seconds later, she corrected herself right in the middle of her <laughs> new track of speech. So there was a part of her brain that was remembering that she said something wrong. It went mm-hmm. into the archive and found the actual name that she was trying to remember, and then interrupted her stream of thought to the interviewer <laughs> and corrected herself. And you can you almost see it happening in real time. It was really interesting. Yeah, and and the idea that we're not just doing one thing at a time is is really important to know and to remember when you're doing these studies, so that you don't overinterpret your data or 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 forget that like just because you're asking your participant to um, only pay attention to something you're showing on the screen doesn't mean that that's the only thing they're paying attention to. Yeah. Yeah. Thinking about last night. (laughs) Right. Or yeah, some argument or like, what am I going to have for lunch? Uh, uh, One of my favorite researchers who I was very lucky to take several classes with um, Nash Unsworth does a lot of work in lapses. So um, they'll do mind wandering research and he does um, like attention failures, which was a fascinating class. I bet attention so, failures comes into productivity training. It, <laughs> I'm just it does guessing. come up a lot. It does come up a lot. And that's one of the reasons I found it interesting is, hey, my attention fails sometimes. Um, and, and looking at when that's happening and when mind wandering's happening and, yeah. and what does that mean? And looking at these just huge data samples to to figure out oh who's mind wandering more and so they'll do these tasks that are on purpose super boring so that people will be more likely to mind wander so they can study it better so here's a jackpot question for you how does an understanding Uh of cognitive neuroscience assist with the treatment of add that was burning question on my mind when i was building the agenda (laughs) okay um So understanding like what our brain can do. So a lot of the stuff in my lab was looking at social inequality. So you're talking about really high stress environments. So we learn, oh, here are the things that the brain's prioritizing. Because if you're under stress, your body has evolved to think that that means your life is in danger, which is mostly not true anymore for us in this society. And so it's going to prioritize things differently. So if you're under, say, acute stress, um, some cognitive powers are improved. Like if you're not stressed at all for a test, you're not going to do as well as if you're just a little bit stressed. You know, if you're so stressed, there's sort of an optimal window of stress for performance. Hormones being generated maybe or? Yes. Cortisol plays a huge role. Um, But prolonged cortisol is going to suppress certain things like the hippocampus, which you need in order to process your long-term memories. Um, It's going to impair your performance on different cognitive tests once you're talking about chronic stress because it can kind of run away. And and so talking about that, because usually by this time somebody's willing to pay for a coach because we're not cheap, (laughs) Um, things are bad. And so we're going to work on on what's going on. So this is just one example. So, okay, if somebody's under chronic stress, we're going to talk about ways to relieve that, having a plan. And, and I'll talk about here's what's going on in the brain. And at the very least, it's incredibly normalizing. Oh, there's a reason that I can't remember something for five seconds. It's because I'm super stressed out. And a lot of times the stress comes from 
the ADHD not being adequately managed. And well, is so, the ADHD itself, is that a chemical process or is that a structural process? <laughs> You'll get a thousand different answers for that. <laughs> well, at least I'm asking the right question. Yes. Um, there are structural differences that you'll see on average when you look at structural exams of like, you know, lots and lots of brains with ADHD. Um, there are some chemical difference. We believe a lot of it has to do with the regulation of dopamine, but actually measuring what, uh, what's going on in a brain of a living person is quite difficult. Chemically speaking, we can tell where the blood is going pretty easily using MRIs, but, uh, what chemicals are happening where is pretty difficult to study. Uh, but we can take information from from other animals that it's our ethics are a little more uh, flexible with <laughs> of what you That's can a do. Good word. good word, flexible. <laughs> I don't do animal studies, but. Um, and, and use those to apply it. So we think that there's dopamine regulation that's happening. But, you know, a different part of the brain has a different dopamine regulation and suddenly it's Parkinson's. So just slapping on the word dopamine, which is really popular for people to do, is kind of a pet peeve of mine because, like, you could be talking about lots of different dopamine regulations. But we're, we're usually talking about the motivational areas of the brain. Mm-hmm. So how did you get into personal coaching was uh, besides after your professor suggested it what was the path that you took towards you know actually building your business devise and conquer i mean was there a gap there or was it immediate um so i was finishing up my thesis and that i needed to to graduate and i needed i needed a next goal um to stay motivated because i'll, I'll get that like finishing end oh, what am I going to do next? So I had actually started planning out a business before I finished my thesis. So I was already working on that. I was already planning some things. And it went through different phases, different names, things like that. Um, But it's been Devise and Conquer for quite a while. So tell me about some of your notable successes without uh, violating any HIPAA laws or anything. Tell me about some great stories about coaching successes. Yeah. So much of it is getting past our own inner critic um, or our own sense of what should I be doing um, and, and just doing what really works for someone. So I had I had one client this year that, I mean, he had a bunch of like really difficult life events and just was struggling on a lot of different levels. And we honestly just shifted a few things into perspective and um, one of them being like, uh, <laughs> he had these ideas about what a task management system should be. And this this violates nothing because it could be one of a thousand of my clients or whatever. <laughs> but um, that it, it should be this big onerous thing. And I just said, so what's worked for you before? Well, I used to have a notebook. Okay. Notebooks what's wrong with the notebook? Notebooks are glorious. <laughs> you know, with all the computer technology we have here at the Mac Observer. <laughs> All right. of us have a notebook in front of us with a pencil. Exactly. <laughs> and I was like, instant access, no batteries required, you know, cl- clear, easy to get to, instantly available. <laughs> so it, the, the difference is that it's personalized because I can shout out like um, a million pieces of software, but it's it ends up being so personal what works for different people that that, that is one of the things. So anyway, that, that guy's doing great. 
by the way, um, like back on a good career path, exercise path, um, things like that. So he, he ended up doing really well. Um, what are some of the keys to productivity? You do productivity coaching. What, yes. what, what are the notable obstacles that keep people from being productive and how do you coach them about that? The biggest thing is learning to let go of what doesn't need to be done. That is the number one thing. Huh. Figuring out what that is, is, is another challenge, but learning what to let go of. Things that aren't important. You see people like that in your life. Yeah. People who are focused, so focused on things that they, they leave the little things alone. And then there are people who are sort of OCD and they have to focus on little irrelevant things that fritter mm-hmm. their time away. Yeah. Right. And if somebody does have um, like serious OCD or something like that, uh, different, it depends on the person. Like I'll, we'll interview and chat about it. But if I think that's getting in the way of coaching, we'll just have to not do coaching. Um, I had one client who does check-ins instead. They're like just quick calls in the morning to like help her get out of the house on time. But coaching um, as, as an industry depends on our clients being um, creative, resourceful, and whole. And, and on, okay, if we come up with a game plan, if we do some exploring that no, not everybody does all the things they say they are going to every single time, but that in general, we're on a path moving forward. And if, if we sense that our clients are not moving forward, what are we doing at that point? And so usually we'll have to have a chat about that. But in general, yeah, we're moving forward and doing good things. We're starting to run out of time here, and I only have a few minutes left to ask you another jackpot question. So okay. you said in the first segment that you grew up with MS-DOS and then went on to Vista and did video. At some point, I take it there was a break because now you're an Apple product guru and you do uh-huh. Apple coaching. How, <laughs> yes, how, how did that happen? What was your first Mac? And 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 what brought you to explore Apple? Was it in, was it Steve Jobs? Was it the design of the products? What lured you into the Apple sphere? In all honesty... For, I only knew the name Steve Jobs from Pixar I, for a long time. But um, no, it was it was Vista. I was so frustrated. I bought a new computer and I had to return it in a week because it just wouldn't work. And I was desperate and I needed to do something. And I hated the idea of going to Apple and not knowing how to be a geek with things and like... But I know how to dig into, you know, the BIOS and things like that. Well, guess what? After I bought a Mac, I didn't have to. So you would say that, um, and I'm going to make this up, uh, PCs are cognitively more difficult than Macs? (laughs) Actually, yeah. And a lot of that is the design. Things I came to appreciate after I got into a Mac. So you asked what my first Mac. It it was a black 2008 MacBook. Oh, those were pretty. Yeah, the little plastic ones. Yeah, yeah. So that was my first one, and yes, like, and and part of that does come back to Steve Jobs. I know now, um, and his design aesthetics, and the fact that it is visually simpler, visually clearer, um, and I came to appreciate these things because I bought the computer, and and within a year started my uh, down my more academic career path, and and I was like, oh right. I'm, I'm learning about how this visually complex scene makes it more difficult to get your work done. That's what 
that's what the Microsoft or the the Windows icons look like. They're they're visually complex. They're not simple. They're not relaxing. Hmm. And so as I was studying the cognitive science, my appreciation grew much deeper. Because you're going like, to gonna have to have a talk with Tim Cook about the cognitive <laughs> visual aspects of iOS 13 because I just installed <laughs> iOS 13.1 and it is very busy visually. Well, There's so much tonight. stuff packed into messages and and find my whatever phone or whatever device. There's a lot of activity, a lot of promotion, a lot of agenda, a lot of mm-hmm. things going on in iOS 13 to make the phone so feature-packed and give people th- so many things to do. But visually, I think it's starting to get a little cluttered. What do you think? I'm installing it tonight or tomorrow. Yeah. So. <laughs> well, take, take a look at messages and take a look at uh, Find My... Yeah, I'll and, uh, probably be ranting and raving about it, <laughs> <laughs> as I want to do. Well, we are out of time, actually, now. So, any final thoughts? Um, no, I'm pretty good. <laughs> okay, well, just wanted to give you a chance to get anything in you wanted to say. Um, it's been fantastic having you on the show. You were just as delightful as you were on Truck Favorites, and and happy that you took us through this tour of cognitive science and how it works and all that stuff. So thank you. Thank you. So how can the listeners contact you if they wish? Um, if you want to find me on Twitter, I'm the ADD liberator. It'd be a picture of me with a lightsaber. It's not hard to miss. Um, easy to miss. <laughs> Um, my website is conquer.consulting. If anyone is going to be at the International ADHD Conference, I will be speaking on technology and the ADHD brain. Cool. Cool. Yeah. So a note to the listeners, I was taken aback by the uh, high-level domain consulting. There's a dot .consulting domain all spelled out. Yes. Conquer.consulting. That's it. Yeah. No comms. Yeah, no comms. Okay. <laughs> all right, Brittany. Well, thanks for joining me on Background Mode. It was a lot of fun. Thank you so much. Folks, you've been listening to the Mac Observer's Background Mode with Brittany Smith and John Marcellaro. We'll see you again next week.